following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. We were uh, reflecting at the uh, retreat for the elders here this past weekend, just uh, God's goodness to us as a church, because I felt like since I have uh, stepped away from preaching, the church grew, like it doubled. I so I'm resigning today just to help the church out continue to grow. Oh, we don't clap. That was totally inappropriate. It may have been very honest, but it was very inappropriate. No, it's, uh, uh, it was exciting to us. We were actually praising God for it because it's just another, just a tangible reminder of the fact that this church is not built around a person. It's not about me or Jordan or Ed or Chris or Isaac or Jared or Caleb. It's none, none of our names matter at all, and, and the last name of all of them that matters is the name of Cornerstone Bible Church. We are here for one name and one name only, and that's the name of Jesus. And so um, God builds his church. Jesus builds his church however he wants, with whomever he wants, and it is a real blessing to us. Now, there's another blessing here today. You're up front. you got to do it. You can't, you can't get out of it. You want to uh, do the honors here for us? You should have. Yeah, this is what, like your eighth child born here at Cornerstone? <laughs> oh, look at this. Oh. <laughs> Mufasa. And look at that ugly hat she's wearing with the Michigan thing on it. You beautiful baby ruined by, what's with that? Got a few supporters here. We are thankful. Uh, God's goodness. You got to ask Mike and uh, Andrea the story of, uh, this, of this labor and delivery. It, it's, uh, it's a good one. They should make a sitcom out of it. It's good to be back up here. It is. Like, it's been a long time now. It's been uh, weird being in your seat, being able to listen and kind of experience some of the things you experience. Uh, it was, it, it's given me some uh, insights or observations uh, in no particular order, just random thoughts. Uh, one, some of you get up to go to the bathroom way too much. I'm sorry. <laughs> if you're pregnant, you get a pass, okay? Pregnant women are allowed to go to the bathroom as often and regularly as they'd like to, even after the baby comes. They have, a, like, a... Like a buffer period afterwards they can continue to use that but some of you guys seriously can you hold it um i'm just saying uh some of you are noisy i notice like it's hard for me when i'm up here always to pay attention to hear that but we sat in a particular spot one time and surround some noisy people like ed and uh it was like very distracting and i'm trying to listen to i think it was chris preaching that so i'm trying to listen to chris preach and it wasn't ed by the way i'm just picking on him for no reason because you're Ed, and I love you so much. You know that. Uh, uh, I was like, just shut up. Don't you know we're trying to hear? So serve one another by keeping the noise level down. Uh, and then third and finally, I never realized how loud the club next door was, right? Because for some reason when I'm up here, I can't hear it as well. When I was sitting out there, I was like, oh, my goodness, has it been like this forever? And you're like, yeah, it has. You know, they're, they're praising Jesus, so we're going to praise with them and be thankful for what God's doing over there as well. It is good to be back up here. Uh, I feel like sometimes I don't always uh, value the, the opportunity to teach you and preach you, but I want to just thank you for the, the break that you gave me. It was refreshing to my soul. I've been looking forward to standing back up here now for, well, two and a half months, actually. I, I was always wanting to kind of get back up here. Uh, it's the thing in the end I miss most during my sabbatical, and so I'm looking forward today to leading us into God's word. But I want to let you know from the outset what we're going to do today. We've done this in the past. If you're new to us, you've never experienced this, let me give you a quick explanation. Today is going to be the first of a two-part sermon. So if you're a Cornerstone uh, a veteran, you know what that means. It means that it's not two sermons, like two separate sermons from one passage. This is one sermon from one passage that was so big I couldn't preach it all in one sitting. Which means that if you're, you're here today, we're going to get into the text and we're going to work, start working into it. We're going to kind of review some things, kind of get our, our bearings right. Chris has done a good job with that. I'm going to do a couple other things here. Uh, and then we're going to work into the text. And at a certain point, we're just going to stop. I picked it. I just arbitrarily picked the spot. We're going to stop right here. 
kind of wrap things up today, and then next week we're going to pick up where I left off. So if you're here today, you've already committed yourself to having to be back here next Sunday to hear the end of this, because one Sunday won't make any sense. There's going to be a lot of things that I don't cover today from our, our passage that we won't get to until next week. So you got to hear both of them together for the, for the, 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 the passage as a whole to make sense. And so now that you know that, let's go into Mark. We're going to read Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 13, and then we are going to go to the Lord in prayer. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Will you bow your heads in prayer with me? Jesus, we come to this time desperately, desperately in need of you. As Ed said and has been in my heart over these past couple of months, we don't just simply need your help. We don't need you to come in and strengthen us or give us wisdom or supplement maybe what's lacking in us and ability or knowledge, etc. The reality was is we never had any of that to start with. There's nothing there for you to supplement or help or fix. Everything in us, everything about us was dead in our sins and and the thing that was needed all along was for us to die so that you could live your resurrected life through us and in us. And so we don't come today asking to be changed necessarily. We want to be destroyed and remade in you. We, we want you to, to be our wisdom and our strength and our joy. We want to see you. We, we're asking, Father, in the name of your Son, that you do the very thing we sang just a moment ago to show us Christ. And to see him, we have come to the very words of life. And so, Jesus, please pour out your spirit on us. Reveal yourself to us. May we hate sin more and cherish you more and know the Father more because of these words that you have written for us to learn. We ask your blessing on this time. Speak through me. I'm nothing. The sermon is nothing. But your words are everything. And you can change our hearts through them. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I hate to say it, uh, but I think it goes without question that we as Americans are a people who love instant gratification in just about every area of life. I mean, we want to experience the benefits and blessings of things without having to put in all the work and the toil and the, the pain and the sacrifice, etc., that's associated with those things. And while there are many places you could see examples of this around us, there's probably no better place to see it than in the frozen food section of any grocery store you could go to around us. Um, have you ever walked around a grocery store's frozen food section and looked at the wide variety of items for sale in that section? Of course not, because you have a life, and you're busy and having far better things to do with your time than that. But I just spent two months having nothing else to do with my time. And so one day when Jamie and I were at Target, she was shopping for something, and I was over in the, the grocery area, and I found myself by Frozen Foods, and I thought, well, I've never done this. I'm just going to walk around and look at all the stuff in the Frozen Food area. And it <laughs> I was worried, actually, when I said I had nothing better to do with my time, that I maybe shouldn't make that comment. 
Maybe that was the right thought. Uh, no, I walked around. I spent some time just looking, seeing what was in there. And, of course, they had all the, the stuff you would expect to have, right? They had frozen pizzas and frozen garlic bread and frozen french fries. And they had a humongous variety of frozen meals that you could pick from, from, like, fancier items like chicken carbonara all the way down to comfort foods like Salisbury steak. They had uh, high-fat meals, low-fat meals. They had healthy meals that are 100% organic, free-range, gluten-free, taste-free, everything, all the way all the way down to like meals that were like so unhealthy they were packaged in lead and asbestos. I mean, it was, it was amazing that's in there. Uh, but as, hold on, I practiced this line. As I was perusing the plethora of pre-packaged items before me, thank you. That was the entire study leave right there. One, one in particular, far more than all the others, caught my eye. I mean, I, literally, I saw it, I stopped. I stood there. I took it out, and I took a picture of it. Here it is. Frozen white rice. No, don't, don't, be, don't be thrown off by the word sticky. It's just plain white rice. Now, listen. I'm no chef. I like to cook a little bit, but I'm not good at it. Jamie would attest to this, okay? But... Even with my limited knowledge, I was under the impression that there are two steps and two steps only to white rice. Step one, boil water. Step two, pour in rice. <laughs> it's not even a recipe. It's, it's just like emotion. It's, you can add salt and butter or anything you want to flavor, but the, the basics of white rice are two steps. Am I right? So I'm standing there and I'm looking at this and I'm really, I'm asking the question, are we this lazy as a country? Is there people whose lives are so busy that they're walking down the aisle and they're like, woe is me, I, I have no time, I'm so busy, I'm so burdened with all the cares of this world, I wish I could have rice, but there's no way. <laughs> and and you, you look then upon the, the freezer and you see a box of frozen white rice and you're like, eureka! <laughs> Finally a one-step solution to my problem and saving my time. And I'm like, Really? Are we, are we really this lazy as a country? Um, there's one other thing. This has nothing to do with where I'm going. There's one other thing I love about this picture. Notice the tagline under the brand. It's Asian brand made in the USA. Because you know what? We may not be hard workers in this country, but daggone it, we are patriotic. I mean, I don't want none of that Asian rice made in Asia. I want... I want my Asian rice made right here in the USA. Someone cue up Lee Greenwood for me, because if you're not proud to be an American right now, I don't, I don't know what's wrong with you. This is, as I said, just a, a silly example of a much larger and not very funny problem that I think is very common and constant for all of us as we you know, just face the daily tasks and, and desires of life. We want to attain the blessings and benefits of fill in the blank, whatever you want to choose, without the willingness or the desire to put in all the work and the toil and the sacrifice that's going to be associated with that. So we want, to, we want to lose weight, right, and get in shape, but we don't want to say no to that dessert, helping a dessert, nor do we want to spend hours at the gym. And for like the four or five of you in here who think running is actually fun and is not work, I would remind you that God invented running to get away from like bears and lions and clowns and scary things, right? It's not, it's not actually fun. It's not fun at all. We don't want to put in the time. I don't want to have to go do that. I don't want to have to, to, to think about what I'm eating and how I'm living in order to, to lose weight. And so every new book that comes out or like plan, lose weight fast, people flock to it. Why are they flocking there? They're flocking there because they don't want to work, but they want the benefits and blessings. Or, or think about our money. We want to get out of debt and begin saving for the future, but, but we don't want to live within our means. We don't want to say no to all that stuff that looks so appealing right now. We want to get organized and be more productive at both home and work, but we walk out in the garage and it's packed floor to ceiling, wall to wall with stuff, and we're like, this is going to take weeks to go through. Never mind, I'll go lay on the couch again. Or you sit down at work tomorrow and you've got an inbox with over a thousand emails still sitting in your inbox, unopened. And you're like, mm, nah, okay. We, we, this, is, this is everywhere in our lives. We want the benefits, we want the blessings, but we don't want to put in the effort, work, sacrifice, toil, pain associated with this, with those things. And it is this very sentiment, folks, that is really at, at the heart of what we find before us here in Mark's gospel. As you may recall, we're in the middle of the second subsection 
of three larger sections of what Mark is doing here in his gospel and presenting Jesus to us. That's the purpose of his gospel, to introduce us to Jesus. Section one, he introduced us to Jesus as being the son of God. In section two, it was Jesus as being the king of all. And now here in number three, which is by far the largest section, as you can see, it's Jesus as the Christ. And so he's kind of broken this down into some smaller sections. But, but everything we're seeing here in this third section is designed by Mark to clarify exactly what it means to say that Jesus is the Christ. Uh, what does that mean? What, it, what does that entail? What exactly is he going to do? And for many of us, when, when we hear those questions asked, because we've grown up in churches or we've grown up in thinking about some of these things, we think, oh, yeah, I know the answers to those. I know who the Christ is. I know what that entails. I know what he's going to do. May I remind you that the disciples would have said the same thing? They, they thought they knew exactly who the Christ was and what it was going to mean for him to be the Christ and what he was going to go do. It, it's interesting to me that this second subsection we're in, the one that begins in chapter 8, verse 22, and ends in 1052, it begins and ends with stories of Jesus dealing with blind men. If you look back at chapter 8, verse 22, if you've got your Bible open, just flip back for a second, you'll see that strange account that Chris walked us through a few weeks ago of this man in, in Bethsaida who was blind, and he asked Jesus to heal him, and Jesus comes and says, sure, I'll heal you, and he spits on him, and he, he, he touches his eyes, and he says, do you see anything? And the guy's like, yeah, I see men, but they look like trees walking. It's like he's kind of healed, but kind of not. He can kind of see, but he's still kind of blind. If you jump from there to chapter 10, verse 46, you, you find another blind guy. It's the story of blind Bartimaeus, if you're familiar with that story. If you're not, we'll get to it eventually. This, this entire subsection that we're in is bookended on either end with stories of blindness, that kind of idea. And, and, and guess what you find in between those two stories? You find a whole bunch of blindness specifically related to what it means to say that Jesus is the Christ. There are going to be these moments in this section where you're going to be, you know, watching the disciples interact with Jesus and be like, oh, they get it. They get it. And then the very next verse, you're going to be like, never mind. They're clueless. They don't, they don't, they don't have a clue. They, they think they understand what it means to say that Jesus is the Christ. They think they know what that's going to entail. They think they know what, exactly what he's going to do. But in reality, they don't understand it at all. In fact, the more I've studied this, this subsection as a whole over the last few weeks, the more I've come to see the importance, importance of Jesus' comment to Peter in chapter 8, verse 33, when, after saying, get behind me, Satan, which is the part we all, like, stop on, we focus at that, oh, get behind me, Satan. No one else quotes the rest of that verse, by the way. You only quote that to people, get behind me, Satan, we're done. But I think it's the next comment that actually is far more important. When Jesus says, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This, this entire subsection that we're in is, in many respects, proving the truth of that statement. When it comes to who the Christ is, when it comes to what that's going to mean, when it comes to what he's going to do as the Christ here on earth, the disciples' minds are very, very, very set on the things of man and very not set on the things of God. To say it a little differently, God has one idea, one plan of, of who the Christ is and of what he's going to do what that's going to entail, what that's going to mean, what it's going to look like for him to bring the kingdom that he was always planning to bring, and the disciples have another plan that's not that. Simple enough? God's plan, disciples' plan. God's idea, the disciples' idea. Not the same. And to help you see this, I think it would be valuable to take just a few extra minutes here at the beginning of today's sermon. And again, this is two weeks worth of a sermon, but a few extra minutes at the beginning of today's sermon to give you a bird's eye overview of this subsection that we're in so that you can understand what Mark is doing, what the Spirit is doing, because I think seeing that will open your eyes to what's really going on here. So, so here's what I'm going to do. As I mentioned previously, the subsection begins with stories of blindness, okay? They're like bookends, if you will, to what's going on. And after the first story of blindness, Jesus turns to the disciples and he asks them a very simple question. It's, who am I? He first asks it by saying, well, who do men say that I am? And they're like, well, some say this, some say that, whatever. But the real question, the important question was the second one. 
who do you say that I am? And this is the moment, again, where Peter says those words we all know so well. You are the Christ. And when he says those words, I think, I could be wrong about this, but I think he is speaking representatively on behalf of all of the disciples. I don't think it's just his opinion as if the other 11 are like, we're still not sure. I think they've all kind of come to the conclusion, yes, Jesus, you are the Christ. And Peter, doing what Peter often does, he's just the spokesman for this. Yes, you're the Christ. Excellent. Give the man a sticker. He's got the right answer. Chris was Chris nailed it when he said to us that that Peter gets the right answer, but he means the wrong thing. Yes, Jesus is the Christ. Yes, he's the Messiah. Yes, he's the promised one from God. But they just mean something different by that than Jesus does. They're expecting that by being the Christ, that's going to mean glory and power and greatness and authority for Jesus as the Christ. And now note this, because this is going to be the theme for a little bit here, for them as well as his followers. They think that this kingdom that Jesus has been announcing is going to bring blessings and benefits for them now, and I think they are expecting a certain amount of glory and power and greatness and authority for themselves as follower, followers of this Christ. And Mark wants us to see this, and so to show this, their wrong expectations to us, Mark then records three specific fairly detailed foretellings of Christ's rejection, suffering, death, and resurrection. And as you look at them, we've seen one already in chapter 8, verse 31. Um, as you look at them, all three are like really clear. <laughs> I mean, really clear. Here's where I'm going. Here's what's going to happen when I get there. Uh, here's who's going to be involved. Like, I mean, here's how many days it's going to take. I mean, he gives some very, very detailed information about what's going to be happening when they get to Jerusalem, the place they're heading to right now. <laughs> but after each foretelling, the disciples blow it royally in each case. So, so think back to the first time. The first time Jesus foretold his death in, in chapter 8, verse 31, what happens instantly afterwards? Peter's like, come over here, Jesus. I need to rebuke you about this. The second time that Jesus is going to foretell his death, they're walking down the road, I believe, and he's telling them, this is what's going to happen, da-da-da-da-da. And if you're, you know, if you're the disciples, what are you doing? Jesus just said he's going to die. What does that mean, right? No. He gets where they're going. He says, so what were you guys talking about on the road? And they're like, mm. we were talking about arguing about who was going to be the greatest, who's the greatest of us. And you're like, what? <laughs> Jesus is talking about I'm going to die, and you're arguing about I'm better. No, I'm better. No, I'm better. I'm better. Like, really? The third time he foretells his death, like, instantly afterwards, James and John are like, hey, we have a question. <laughs> Can we sit on either side of your throne in your kingdom? Three foretellings of his death. Very clear. Very specific. None of them connect <laughs> with the disciples' minds because after each foretelling, they, they come with these, like, bonehead questions and, and comments and, and, and discussions. And all three of those failures then are followed, lastly, by correction. Jesus speaking directly to the specific failures that are at work or are being displayed by whatever is going on in that particular case. And so, both as an example and as a lead-in now to our text this morning, let's just go back and for a, just for a second, remember what we've seen so far since the first failure, with the first failure, after that first foretelling of Jesus' death. Now, you already know this one because Chris covered it for us. I'm not going to redo anything with it. I just want to read it to us mainly and make a, a an observation along the way just to draw us back in for this morning. Look back at chapter 8, verse 31. We're picking up right after Peter's confession. You're the Christ. Great. Verse 31. And he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again and pause. That's pretty clear, right? <laughs> detailed. It's so detailed, in fact, that, that Mark writes, and he said this plainly. Just make sure you understood. It wasn't like in code. Jesus is making it very clear. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. Now, that's the first foretelling. Here's the failure. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And again, pause. Why? Why is Peter rebuking him? Well, well even without Mark explicitly saying it, it's clear from the context that Peter is, is rebuking Jesus for what he just said. Jesus said, I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. And Peter's like, no, no, no. No. And, and, 
uh, Matthew, it was interesting, Matthew doesn't assume that you'll get that from the context, so he actually records Peter's words for us. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. In other words, this kind of suffering and, and rejection and death that you're talking about, it's, it's not going to happen. Not to you, Jesus. You're the Christ. And Chris was, again, right. I'm not trying to re-say things Chris said. I'm just reminding us that he was right when he says that Peter is correcting Jesus here. He's correcting him. He's not just like being polite. Like sometimes people say, well, something bad's going to happen. We're like, oh, it's never going to happen. It's not. We're just being polite. We don't really know what to say back. So Peter's not doing that. He's telling Jesus, no, you're wrong. You are wrong. You're not going to suffer. You're not. over a microphone. That wasn't in the text. For him, of him, will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after his come with power. And we all read that and we're like, what? Why did he just say all of that? What exactly is Jesus correcting with those remarks? Well, may I suggest to you sort of what I've already said now, that what Jesus is correcting here is a faulty view of the power and the glory that are associated both with Jesus as the Christ and with his kingdom that he's bringing and with the disciples themselves in their own minds. In other words, when they picture Jesus as the Christ and themselves as his followers, they are picturing a glorious, powerful victory over all evil, over all wickedness, over all injustice and wrongdoing as they perceive it. They are expecting that Jesus will go forth and be the conquering king. And they are expecting that they too will get to enjoy many, if not all, but many at least, of those same privileges. And I'll show you why they're expecting this in just a minute. And so for Jesus to talk about his pending suffering and, and rejection and death, that doesn't in any way jive with any of the expectations in their hearts. I mean, I have found it very helpful in Mark in my study so far to try to stop at points and put myself into the shoes, the minds, the, the hearts of the disciples. Do that with me just for a moment in relation to what we just read. Think about all that, that he just said to them about all of these things that they need to do if they want to follow him and try to hear it from, from their perspective. Uh, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself. Why? Why would following their Christ require self-denial? Won't I be getting everything? Like he's going to go out and conquer the world and it's going to be his kingdom and I'm going to be ruling with him. So what would be the purpose of self-denial? If you want to follow me, you must pick up your cross. Wait a minute, why? Didn't the Messiah come to conquer and win and guarantee not just my life but the quality of my life? Why? Maybe pick up a, a sword or pick up a throne, but picking up a cross doesn't make any sense. You want to save your life, you must lose it. <laughs> Why? It isn't, aren't we on the winning team? If you want to save your soul, you have to forfeit this world. Why, Jesus? Aren't, aren't you going to go out and conquer the world? Aren't we going to rule it together? If you want to follow me, you cannot be ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. Why in the world would we ever be ashamed of the conquering king? Everyone else is going to be ashamed, right? They're going to be ashamed that they didn't know him and follow him. We don't have anything to be ashamed of. Right? Why would, why would you say all of this? In their minds, the ideas of suffering and rejection and death 
do not in any way mesh with the expectations that they have of who the Christ is and of what his kingdom is going to be like. And so, Jesus shows them something very special. Here in Mark chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus makes a seemingly enigmatic kind of statement, right? He says, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, as Chris noted last week, there's a few different ways you could understand this. I think really there's only one way in the end, but people like to argue about some different points. I think he's clearly referring to the transfiguration story we're about to look at here this morning. But I don't want you to think about it from that angle. Again, put yourselves back into the shoes of the disciples and hear those words. This is probably the first statement in Jesus' little speech here where they're like, yes, that I get. Kingdom of God coming with power. Some of us are going to see it. Awesome, right? I mean, that now, ha, now you're, t- I don't know about all this self-denial and cross and forfeiting the world stuff, Jesus, but this, this I get. Ugh, awesome. So what does Mark do next? Well, notice he begins to tell us a story about a very specific incident. Be specific with the timing. Note this for next Sunday. It's six days after these words are spoken in chapter 9, verse 1. He's specific with the participants. Four men, Jesus, three disciples, Peter, James, and John. Excuse me. He's specific with the location, not in the sense of naming a, like a point on the map, but of a particularly described place. It is a very high mountain. He takes them up there by himself, and he's specific with what happens to Jesus when they reach the top. He was transfigured before them. Now, we need to stop for just a moment and think about this word transfigured here. Because while it's an okay word, I think it's not the best word we our translators could have used here in in Mark chapter 9. I think there was a much better word, and why they chose not to use it, I don't know. The reason I don't think this is the best word, it's fine, but we don't get this word. Like, you never use the word transfigured in any other context, right? I mean, I never hear it used in any other context, but right here in Mark chapter 9, like, I remember at Home Depot, and the guy's like, well, I'm going to transfigure this for you. Hold on. You know, never, never used. But the word, the Greek word that's behind this word, is one we're all much more familiar with and have probably used a lot more in life. We haven't used it a ton, but we've used it a lot more in life than we've used the word transfigured. It's the Greek word metamorpho. Metamorpho. Do you hear an English word that we get from the Greek word metamorpho? Metamorphosis. Metamorphosis describes the changing of something from one form to another form. We're not talking about cosmetic changes as if it goes from being blue to red. We're not talking about just like minor changes as if if it went from being short to tall. We're talking about dramatic, uh, uh, almost unimaginable kind of changes from one form to another. So the kids a few years back got one of those uh, butterfly things. You know what I'm talking about? The little kits you can get for your kids where they can watch a caterpillar, caterpillar change from a caterpillar into a butterfly. So you get the caterpillars and like... Half of them die right off the bat, whatever. But a few of them live, and you give them their parsley, and they're eating away, and you watch them for a few weeks, and eventually they climb up to the top of the cage, and they make a cocoon. It's a big old fat, ugly caterpillar. fits in this little tiny cocoon. It's like, never mind. <laughs> I had a joke there. But uh, it's, it's like, you're, how do you fit? And they're in there, and they hang for what, a couple weeks, three weeks maybe. And eventually you see it shaking, wiggling around, starts to break open, and out comes no longer a big, fat, ugly caterpillar. Now it's a beautiful butterfly. It's not like, it's not like a bug's life where that one caterpillar like sprouted wings out of his back, the big, the big one, you know what I'm talking about? It's like he's still like a caterpillar, but just now two little wings. No, we're talking complete dramatic change. Nothing even close to what it had been before. Unbelievable. Mark writes that Jesus is metamorphosed in front of them. He is metamorphed. He is completely changed in form from, from one form to another. And all Mark tells us about this radical transformation is that his clothing became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. They're not just clean. They're, they're shiny. 
Matthew, when he records the same event, adds that Jesus' face shone like the sun. Imagine trying to stare at the sun for a moment. This is what it looked like to look into Jesus' face up on the mountaintop. It says that his clothes are shining. It must have been amazing. So amazing, in fact, that both Matthew and Mark, neither of whom, remember, were up on the mountain, both of them struggle, I think, in trying to describe Jesus to us at this particular moment. All they seem to be able to do is to describe him in terms of pure light. It's not just Jesus, like, glowing. It's something beyond that. I I don't even know how to describe it. It must have been how Peter and James and John described it to them. Just amazing. But, But what happened next must have been even more amazing still. Because Mark now tells us that two other specific individuals joined them on the mountaintop, Elijah and Moses. And if you're curious, and you should be, as to why it's these two specific individuals, I'd put my money on a couple of reasons. Number one, these two individuals, more than any other characters in the Old Testament, represent or embody the entire Old Testament. Moses is the giver of the law, right? He's the guy who goes up on another mountaintop and receives the the commandments from God and delivers the law to to Israel, establishing them as a nation, as as a kingdom, as a people. Elijah is considered to be one of the greatest prophets, so great that that God didn't allow him to die. He sent a chariot of fire and took him up into heaven. These two men are the very embodiment of the Old Testament law and prophets now come to meet Jesus, but that's not the main reason. Number two, these two individuals, more than any other, were associated with the coming of the Messiah and the coming of God's kingdom in the minds of the Jews of Jesus' day. Remember how I told you earlier that I would uh, explain why the disciples were expecting that Jesus would go forth to be the conquering king and that they would get to go forth with him and conquer as well and enjoy all those blessings and benefits? Well, here you go. I think that they're expecting many of those same privileges because of of passages like the one in Malachi chapter 4. As Malachi is writing final words of the Old Testament as he is talking about the coming of this Messiah, Israel's hope, and the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord, Malachi writes this. He says, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Who's that? That's the conquering king. He's going to go forth. He's going to conquer. He's going to, all the evildoers, stubble, set ablaze, done. But for you who fear my name, the followers of the conquering king, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. The idea there is joy. And you shall tread down the wicked. You, you're going to tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Wow, right? I mean, it's going to be amazing both for the king and for his followers. And now... Malachi brings up two specific individuals that he associates with this great and awesome day of the Lord. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction, the end of the Old Testament. And so who are the final two people that are in the minds of the average Jew of Jesus' day associated with the great and awesome day of the Lord, the coming of God's kingdom? It's Moses and Elijah. So if, if, if you're them, if you're the disciples, if you're Peter, James, and John, stand there with them on the mountaintop for a moment. If you're there in their shoes and you see what you see and you know what you know and you're expecting what you expect and there's Jesus shining like the sun and Moses and Elijah have appeared out of nowhere to talk with Jesus, what do you think is happening? 
kingdom has come with power and glory. Oh my goodness, this is amazing. But it is at this point now that Mark records a seemingly trivial yet intriguing little detail when he tells us that Moses and Elijah were talking with Jesus. I mean, that's not important, right? Why would he include it if it's not important? Well, maybe it is important. Maybe, maybe you know, we should be curious about this. <laughs> what are they talking about? Mark doesn't include any information to that point, though you will understand what they were talking about by the time you get to the end of the story, because the questions the disciples ask on the way down the mountain are, I believe, because of the conversation that they get to overhear. Luke, though, records for us what it is that Moses and Elijah want to talk about with Jesus. They, uh, in Luke chapter 9, verses 30 to 31, he writes this, And behold, two men are talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appear in glory, great. And they spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Wait a minute. Moses and Elijah, these two characters associated with the great and awesome day of the Lord, the very embodiment of the Old Testament law and prophets, they appear to Jesus who has been transformed before them into uh, some picture of his heavenly glory. They have come to talk with him about suffering and rejection and death. They've come to talk with him about his departure, as Luke refers to it, that he is about to accomplish in Jerusalem. What? That doesn't make any sense. He's supposed to be the conquering king. He's supposed to be establishing his rule and reign, sitting on the throne in Jerusalem, defeating our foes for all eternity. Not suffering, not being rejected, not dying, and certainly not departing in Jerusalem. That's not the plan, right? Right? <laughs> you see, they, they thought they understood God's plan. They thought they had it all figured out. Clearly they didn't. You see, they misunderstood three very important details, and we're going to see these, and this is where we're taking our break today, okay, after these three details. They misunderstood three very important details about God and his plan for the Christ and for the establishment of his kingdom. Number one, they misunderstood that the tr excuse me they misunderstood the true identity of the primary foe to God's kingdom. They misunderstood the true identity of the primary foe to God's kingdom. You see, they thought that the primary foe to God and His kingdom were all of the evildoers, all of the wicked, all of the unrighteous, all of the sinners. And if we're going to be really specific, let's be specific for them. They thought the real problem was Rome and all of the Gentile nations around them. This is the problem. These are the, the sinners who oppose God. These are the wicked who stand against his kingdom. These are the, the people that Jesus has to come and defeat. They were wrong. These sinners, okay, this group, the Romans, the Gentiles, all these other nations, they were not the primary foe to God's kingdom. It wasn't the sinners, it was sin. Sin was the primary foe to God's kingdom. Sin was the, the first and great enemy that had to be defeated in order for, for God's rule and reign, his kingdom, to be established. And, and that wasn't a political uh, uh, enemy that resided on some piece of real estate somewhere. That was a, an enemy, or sin was and still is, a spiritual enemy that, that resides in the heart of every man, woman, and child. We know this. Sin is an enemy to God, and if we would be more honest with ourselves, we'd recognize it's an enemy to us also. It promises us happiness and freedom, always to lie, always bringing slavery, always bringing death. It never, it never delivers what it says. It, if the greatest foe of God's kingdom was like a, a political dynasty or a military dynasty somewhere, then it would have been defeated with swords and armies, and Jesus would have led them. He said as much. But, but since it wasn't the primary foe, victory would have to be achieved in some other means, which leads us to the second misunderstanding. Number two, they misunderstood that victory over this true foe would come at a very costly price. 
I think the disciples expected an easy victory in the establishment of God's kingdom through Jesus. And they couldn't wait. Man, when they figured out that he's the Christ, they're on board. We're with Christ. We're with the Messiah. Look at all that's going to come, right? They're, they're totally with him. But they didn't understand God's plan. Because in God's plan for the establishment of his kingdom, victory would come at a very costly price. In fact, it came with what seemed to the disciples as the very defeat of the Messiah. Victory came not through some amazing act of conquering, but through his suffering. The very thing they didn't like, his suffering and his humiliation and his rejection and, and the death on the cross, it, it came through him shedding his blood for us. He had to die in our place. And this is what the later New Testament writers will, will, will regularly refer to as the great mystery, the mystery of the gospel. If you've ever read that term as you've been reading in your New Testament, say, I don't really know what, that, what that's talking about. Well, here it is. It's that plan of God that wasn't 100% clear to the, the people of the past. The disciples are a great example. They don't fully understand what God is doing. But now that Jesus has died and risen again, oh, now we get it. Now it's clear. Uh, listen, for example, listen to Paul talk in Ephesians chapter 1. He says, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. Right? Great. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth. What's he saying there? He's saying that our redemption. Our salvation, which Paul defines as the forgiveness of our sins through the blood of Jesus and given to us by the grace of God, that all of that is the mystery. That part of God's plan that wasn't fully understood in the past, the disciples being a great example, wasn't fully understood, but has now been made clear to us who have been chosen by God. This was his purpose all along. All along. It wasn't a plan B wasn't a backup. It wasn't like a good idea he had later. It had been the plan all along to shed the blood of his son for us in order to graciously forgive us of our sins, to defeat our true foe. The suffering and death that Jesus endured, it wasn't a defeat, though the disciples saw it that way at that moment. It was actually a surprise attack. That's the crazy part about it. It looked like defeat, but it was a, it was a surprise attack. It was, it was the means by which true victory over our real foe, our greatest foe, would be achieved. Our redemption, our forgiveness, it came through the blood of Christ. Number three, they misunderstood the extent to which the blessings of this surprising victory would reach. They misunderstood the extent to which the surprising blessings of this victory would reach. They're expecting glory for who? For themselves and for Israel. They're expecting the, the people, of, uh, the children of Abraham to go forth and conquer. As I said a minute ago, they're expecting that Jesus will lead them in defeating all the Gentile heathen sinners around them. Later in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3, Paul again talks about this mystery, this thing the disciples didn't understand, now clear to us. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And if you don't know who a Gentile is, in the Jewish world, there's two groups of people, Jew, Gentile. If you're a Jew, you're a Jew. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. So the vast majority of us in this room, I assume, are in the second group. We're Gentiles. So he's talking about us. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. What's the mystery, Paul? Spit it out. Okay, here it is. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Wait a minute. Is Paul saying that part of God's master plan for establishing his kingdom on earth, his rule and reign, included us all along? Got it. Bingo. You get the gold sticker now. What the, what the disciples were expecting and hoping for couldn't have happened. They wanted Jesus to go out and conquer now and establish his kingdom, and Jesus wasn't going to do it without all of his people. From every kindred, every tribe, and every nation, it, across time, he wasn't going to leave us out. 
Listen to how Paul says it in Colossians 1. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. What's the mystery, Paul? What was God's plan all along? To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which, here it is, is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It was God's plan for you and I to be one with Christ. The suffering and the death and the resurrection of our, of our Christ, of our Messiah, of our Savior Jesus. This is it. So that you and I could be forgiven and could be made one with him. No wonder Paul then goes on to say, him and him only we proclaim. Warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we can present everyone mature in Christ. Look folks, the, the disciples didn't understand this. Any of them. They're lost right now. They're clueless. They wanted all the benefits and blessings of, of being with the Messiah and, and getting all they thought would come with that, but, but they were not prepared for the pain and the suffering that was always a part of God's plan to come with that. But it had to come. It, it had been his plan from eternity past to redeem a people for himself from every kindred, tribe, and nation by graciously forgiving their sins through the death, the sacrificial death of his son. What the disciples needed to understand was that this suffering of the Christ, it's not antithetical to his glory. It's not like standing opposed to it as if this is a problem. No, 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 no. quite the opposite. As we'll see in more detail next week, his suffering would be the means by which he, his glory would be most fully and perfectly revealed. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, we... We come today as a group of Gentile believers and we just stop and we thank you for not leaving us out. Thank you for coming and defeating our greatest foe, sin. Jesus, thank you for, for suffering and dying in our place so that, so that we could be forgiven through your blood. Thank you for, for waiting for us. If any group of people had reason to stop and praise you and thank you for your kindness and your goodness to us, for your suffering, for your rejection, your humiliation and death, it should be us. We should be singing it and praying it and, and, and living in that joy and, and thankfulness all day, every day. Father, we see here, even in this story, even for the little part we made it into, that that the disciples, they don't get it. They don't understand. They're expecting a, a lot of easy things to come and glory and power. And, and when Jesus talked about his suffering, they just weren't there. You would bring them there. Their blindness would eventually be conquered, and we're thankful for that too. So that eventually all things, heaven and earth, Jew and Gentile, all of it would be made one in your son. And so I pray, Father, that you will give us thankful hearts for Jesus, for your plan. May, may we praise you and thank you without ceasing, for forgiving us, loving us, choosing us, and making us your own. In Jesus' name.